You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's pray. Gracious Father, be with us now. Um, We humbly ask, and we are bold to pray, um, give yourself to us now. Open our ears, open our eyes. Um, Let us behold your grace and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. End of a three-week series, relatively short series, um, on 1 Corinthians 15. Just one chapter, three weeks. One of the great chapters. I said last week, and say that about a lot of things. Um, but for me, true. Um, uh, I still don't know why. Usually about this time, I kind of figure out why I was going to, why I picked a class or something else like that. I don't know why I picked 1 Corinthians 15, except I just really like it. And it's a hard chapter. It's kind of complicated. Um, so I just wanted to slow down and kind of score up to it. And, oh, man, today, I mean, these words are so great. The second, the last third of 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, I'm almost going to weep now. Um, so disclaimer, you know, I'm in middle age. I don't know what happened, but I started to become this crier. And so it kind of comes to me a lot. And so I try to push it down, but it happens. And so it may happen again. There is just something Something here, these words go straight straight in there, so that's sort of my no apology apology for, uh, for what's coming. Um, on your handout, um, you can see the back, um, uh, Charles, uh, Charles Barkley, that's funny, ha ha, Charles Barkley, um, <laughs> that's really funny, never put those two together. John Barclay, not Charles, um, who's also not from Alabama, but from England, teaches uh, New Testament at Durham, England, Pauline scholar, Pauline scholar. Um, uh, reading another one of his books, read one of his big books a couple of years ago, so thanks, Shannon, um, called uh, Paul and the Gift, um, Gift and Grace, um, uh, the same word, charis. We get the word charismatic or Eucharist, charis. Um, lots of words kind of carry those over. Gift, grace, gratitude all come from the same place. And just wanted to sort of, you know, not squaring up to it again in any significant way, but just to give you a little bit. I thought it was very helpful for me to think about grace. And it came out of the First Corinthians 15, the first week, two weeks ago, where... Um, where Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what sort of spun me to Barclay's, what he calls perfections of grace, where he thinks about um, uh, brief soiree here. Uh, It's easy to say, well, they don't believe in grace. Um, And Barclay slows down in a very fair-minded way, whether it's in church history or even now, if you're sort of a grace Nazi and you're like, oh, I believe in grace more than he does or something else like that. I mean, maybe, well, maybe not. Maybe just believe in it differently. Um, and he full out from the scriptures, being a New Testament scholar, as he is, um, what he called six perfections. Um, to perfect something, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, comes to mind, uh, is to draw it all the way through to its end. What we might say, taking something out to its, um, to its end. And if you follow the six perfections of grace that Barclay identified in a very humble way, he said, I'm open to another. It'd be better if there were seven. And he sort of hit a pun, you know, in terms of a biblical thinker. Um, uh, uh, but he said, the six perfections of grace, um, incongruity, not by memory, superabundance, singularity, priority, 
incongruity, efficacy, and non-circularity. These different perfections, these different concepts, these different axes, if you want to call it that, that flow out of grace, that come out of gift, whether it's even just gift giving coming up on Christmas in a horizontal way, um, or in the vertical, where God gives a gift. Does he look at us uh, and says, um, while you are yet sinning, Christ died for you. And of course he does, because it's right there in Romans 5. But that would be an emphasis on the perfection of incongruity. Let me look upon the one, uh, Gilcracky is his name, who is the least likely recipient of my gift and my grace. For he is the chief of sinners, or he knows himself to be that. And he says, but I, I am the Lord, and my property singular property, so there's singularity, is good. My proper work is gift. My proper work is salvation. And I give to him while he is weak and godless and yet sinning. Uh, and so he gives. And that gift then does something. That's efficacy. Um, and it gives me the gift of faith, belief, trust. Um, it turns me, the gift of repentance. It turns me away from myself away from my small black heart. And he turns me out, spiritual spina bifida, being, um, being cured there in the moment of a word, or in Paul's language we'll get to today, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, um, turns me away from myself and up to God. Um, and it gives me feet, and he gives me hands, as his feet and his hands ran after me and grabbed me. And now I'm going out into the world, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit, hearing Catherine Jacob as I say that. Um, that's just the perfections of grace. And I just offer it to you, if in your own reflections it's helpful, um, whether you're doing, because um, uh, no in the room, a lot of people here do, some reading, um, reading even a little theology and, and reading the scriptures or, or talking um, to others or listening to podcasts or coming to classes or listening to our classes or sermons. Or just, gosh, let me think about grace. You know, the different perfections, the different axes. And what does it mean for me? What about you? What about me? How is the Lord's gift? Twice, almost buried. And then these words come up for me. We'll point them out when we're reading 1 Corinthians, the second half of 1 Corinthians 15. And God gives. And usually we lose the verb because it goes, and you can just stop and say, like, and God gives. And what an amazing grace. How sweet that sound, that God gives, because he doesn't have to. But there we hear our prayer, whose property is always to have mercy and to give that mercy. And even more than that, whose property is always to have grace. And he gives that gift, and we have hearts of gratitude. So the perfections of grace that are there, um, offer that to you. And now turning the page um, to read 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35. Um, and as an intro, and this came from a lunch this week with a friend, uh, uh, the thread. I always sort of look for a thread in my prayers before I come to a class. Um, you will not die. That's the thread. <laughs> what a thread, huh? You will not die. Um, this is the great gift and the great hope that is given here in the Word. Uh, and I can't help but echo Luther here. Um, in one of his just phenomenal, what I'd call devotional theology, because this wasn't a sermon. It was a, uh, an address to the antinomians in 1538, or an antinomian disputation. 
that's for whoever. Um, listen to these words of Luther. Um, look to Christ. He, Christ says, behold, you are saddened. You are afflicted. You have been led into hell by the law and your black cholera that torments you. Do not despair. There is a rhubarb. That was a medicine at the time. There is a rhubarb that is far better, that is by far the best, namely Christ. Lay hold of him and you will live. Once Christ is received by faith, a very great battle is begun. The strongest giants who even devour the entire world, namely the two deaths, death itself and Christ's death, are engaged in battle with each other. Yet Christ cries out right away, I am the death of death, the hell of hell, the devil of the devil. Do not fear, my child. I have one. Be of good cheer. You will not die. Oh, my goodness. These two, a very great battle with the two strongest giants, death itself and Christ's death. And Christ's death defeats the last enemy, death itself. You heard that last week. You will not die. Do not fear. I have one. Be of good cheer. Let those words just be an intro as Luther pulls out here of 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere, but he is surely centered right here in this chapter. Um, the end, nearly the end of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Um, so starting at verse 35, let's read it. I'm just going to go back and unpack it, and maybe we'll, um, well, we'll see. Um, so verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So I'll stop, when, then we'll read the whole thing. Like last week, um, mention this. Uh, another invitation. Your, our God is too small statement. Um, of course he is. That's part of what Paul means when he says you are godless. Um, what Paul's here going to call a fool. The Psalms give us the definition. We talked about this in small group last week. Um, uh, a fool believes in his heart there is no God. That this world is all there is. That's our default mode. The flesh cannot require us to know that God lives, to let God be God. Um, and so we live as fools. We go through this life hour by hour, minute by minute, most of the time, believing that this is all there is, which is where, again, we're going to hear it again. We can't turn a page in Scripture almost without, behold, or in the Gospels, Jesus saying, Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, is what he says there. Uh, that's the gift there being given through the word of an open your ear, open your eye. I do that work here, saliva, uh, touch of my hand, um, epaphtha, be open. All the different ways, the gift of God to open our sight, to see him and to see things truly, to hear him and to hear things as they are. Our default mode is foolish. Do not be fools. Don't speak nonsense as if this world is all there is. We must reckon ourselves to the fact that at the end of the day, which is to say our deaths, but right now we live in sight of our death to be free, that we have to be content with the fact that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And we must let God be God and say, listen, listen. There is something else. 
I know it's hard to understand what a resurrection body is going to look like. Because he says, someone will ask, but how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? My friend was burned alive. So they might say here in the first century, you might say, you know, so-and-so was cremated. How are they going to come back? Um, that was a big deal. It's not so much anymore. But even in my lifetime, when, we, when most of us were born, that was not a common practice in the church for this reason. Um, how will the dead be raised? Um, when, uh, when Christ comes back, when the last trumpet is born, blown, uh, and we pop out like dead flies in the winter. That's, again, what Luther, what Luther said. Uh, when the trumpet is blown, we shall be resurrected in some resurrection body, like dead flies coming back to life after the winter. Um, uh, how will that happen? Paul's humble but clear answers, but we don't know exactly, but let me speak around the side. It'll be something like this. So he doesn't dismiss the question, because that's a central question for a lot of us, probably for all of us. And he's going to gently but clearly give us an answer. So here, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. You might hear that in two ways. You fool, or gently, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not a body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives, see there's that phrase, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And this is where it really shifts into overdrive. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, and we shall all be changed, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed." For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not empty. Thanks be to God. So pulling this out, just to slow down, go back, discontinuity. I think there's a press for a lot of us to want to make things contiguous, continuity. That's both sort of a cultural thing. We always want to sort of find the middle ground. You know, can we all sort of get along and say, if they're not so different, we're more alike than different and all that. That's true in a lot of instances, not true here, not true in a lot of the scripture. Paul wants to amplify the discontinuity as far as the east is from the west, as far as different as a star is from a human, a human from an animal, a bird from a fish, as far as grace is from the law, as far as the flesh is from the spirit. As far as sin is from grace, as far as, as far as, as far as. That discontinuity Paul wants to bring in here to this question, to this good question, but how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? He says, you're talking nonsense, you nonsense talker. Oh, child, he might say, and he does say elsewhere. Um, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. An echo of John 12, um, where Jesus himself says, um, I, think, I think the context says, and now came the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, um, especially in the Gospel of John. That's a signal. <laughs> his glory is going to be his death, that God's glory is going to be magnified in his death. Um, and he said, look, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies. Um, uh, and Dennis Sanson was up here about six weeks ago reminding us that's the epitaph to the brothers Karamasov, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, death from life, sin from grace, perishable from imperishable, east from west, um, uh, a whole different category of being. Um, that's what Paul wants to set up. And he goes through here. And he draws that out. Um, but God gives it, the kernel, the seed, a body that he has chosen. Um, to each kind of seed, his own body. Um, the analogy of a seed is certainly like us as we're planted. The sign of Jonah, who spent three days in the belly of a whale. And so the Son of Man shall spend three days in the belly of the earth. He goes in a seed, it comes out a plant. Um, unless we had experience, we wouldn't intuitively know that an acorn would become an oak tree, unless repeatedly over and over and over and over and over again, we saw this. Something like that, you have to go with analogy here, something like that is how the what is sown as perishable, very importantly, we heard that word earlier um, in 1 Corinthians, that if Christ has not been raised, we talked about the seven, think your faith is futile, your faith is empty, um, then Christ, if, if there is no resurrection of dead, then Christ is not raised, our preaching is empty, and the dead are really dead. The dead have perished, is the same word. Rot, this is kind of gross, rot, decay, entropy, decomposition, 
that which is now becomes undone, the unmaking of creation. In the beginning, God created, and then sin, and then that creation was unmade. You know, still gross, but something probably a little bit more common. This time of year, you know, gifts of citrus or whatever else, and you open the box. This ever happened, and ugh! It said perishable, caution, deliver quickly, and it didn't, and it's just rotting citrus. Smells, looks gross. You throw the whole box away, because if one, you just don't want to even touch it. You don't go through and look at the rest. Perish, decay is the specific word. Even looking at this, imperishable is the anti-decay, is one way you could say that. As far as perishables are from imperishable, we don't even know this, only in concept. A body or a being that does not decay. Can you imagine? And Paul wants to say, I hope so. I hope, like the bell in A Magician's Nephew, the, uh, one of the Narnia stories, they go up and they ring the bell. And we know by experience over and over and over again that when you hit a bell, it's initially loud and it gets softer and softer and softer. But not so this bell. They tapped the bell, which wasn't to be tapped, but they did it anyway. Sin. And it gets louder and louder and louder and louder and louder until the sound shakes all of the stone figures. And one, if I remember right, I mean to go here, awful witch comes back to life. Um, the unmaking, the reverse of all things, the opposites begin to happen. Um, that's what Paul is drawing us into slowly, laboriously, wanting to unfold so he can behold and tell us a mystery, to reveal to us the gift of God. For not all flesh is the same, verse 39. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, etc., and so forth. Um, why should we be incredulous? Why should it be incredible? Why should we be surprised that we realize, if we step back, that God gives us a different sort of body in the resurrection body? Not this flesh, which is subject to pain, entropy, decay, age, decomposition, etc., etc., etc. But something wholly different. Imagine this, a body which can survive God. <laughs> can you imagine? A body which can survive God. Um, again, just kind of wing it, let me hurry up. Um, a body which can survive God. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is decayable. What is raised is undecayable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in splendor, in glory. It is sown in weakness, subject to entropy and time. It is raised in power, a peculiar power to withstand decay and entropy and time. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual. It is not immaterial. That's not what that word means. That's what we normally think of. Something that is imbued by the very Spirit of God, which hovered over the water and which rattled the dry bones and which descended upon Christ at his baptism and which is coming again in power and glory at Christ's second coming to try you in God. Imbued by the Holy Spirit to survive God. There is a natural body, and there is also that kind of body, as a resurrection body, that can survive that. And then the two atoms, both pro, pro, um, procreators, progenitor, progenerators, the ones that start things, 
Adam, though after sin, the author of life, but a life that dies. The second Adam, Christ, the author of life, but a life that does not die. You will not die. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Verse 50, where we wanted to get to. So I tell you this. A couple of weeks we're going to be doing, um, starting next week, an Advent class and a Christmas class. Uh, set down this, set down this. The Journey of the Magi by, what's his name? The English guy from Ohio, T.S. Eliot. So thank you, Ron. Um, set down this. So I tell you this, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This fleshly body cannot survive God, nor the, imper- nor the perishable inherit the imperishable, the decayable inheriting following the de- uh, decayable. Behold, repentance language, at the end of our lives, we must let God be God and recognize that he knows us better than we know ourselves. I tell you a mystery. Paul uses that word not... Like, here's a combination. Oh, you did it. Good job. Um, that word always is connected to the word revelation. So if you want to connect that when you're reading the scripture, I tell you a mystery. That which always is, but in the fullness of time, God lets us know, revealing it to us, again, by his spirit. So unfolding this mystery, we shall not all sleep. Some will still be alive. I pray it's right now, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Some will still be alive when Christ comes back. We won't all fall asleep in death. Um, But all of us, either those who are here when Christ comes or those of us who have already died, all of us will be changed from the perishable to the imperishable, from this flesh and blood body to that resurrection body. And how? In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. Um, like a starter's pistol that goes off just that fast. Uh, everything will change. At the last trumpet, um, for when that trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on, the clothing analogy, the imperishable. And this mortal body, this body which dies, must put on that which cannot die. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And he quotes here from Isaiah and Hosea, kind of paraphrases better than quotes. Death is swallowed in victory. O death, then he mocks it. Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, uh, the primary culprit. It's always sin. Not just, let's just Say it again and again and again and again. That's not what you do or don't do or say or don't say. It's just the condition of all things as all creation groans, as in the pains of childbirth, under the condition, the weight, the pall, the, uh, uh, as we breathe the atmosphere of sin, of this sin-ridden world. The power of sin is the law. Um, the cause and effect, the if-thenness, the consequence, the consequential existence, which is defined by what Paul is referring to as the law, all that will go away. For Christ is the end of the law. Freedom, freedom, freedom in the internal now of God is what waits us. 
Thanks be to God who gives us victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think I will do this. I wasn't sure if I would. Um, I'm going to listen to a 4 minute 46 second poem called um, Go Down Death by Whitney, Whitney Phipps is narrating it. You might know this. You probably do. Whitney Phipps, I mean, just the sort of man that when I listen to him, I get so jealous for about a tenth of a second because his voice is so beautiful, this booming baritone. And then that goes past, and I'm just like, thank you, Lord, for making a voice like that, that I could listen to it and receive that gift. Um, he recites um, a poem called Go Down Death, written in, I learned all this just this morning, um, 1927, um, by a man named Joseph Johnson, I think. Joseph Welton, no, that's somebody else. Joseph Johnson um, wrote it for a funeral. Somebody he knew named Caroline died. And this was uh, for the funeral. And that's what he's reading. Two things. It's incredibly affective. I mean, I weep. It's part of that weeping part. Um, uh, with just this idea that death is not the last word. Um, that life is the last word. You will not die. I will not die. That's amazing. What I don't like about what we're about to hear, I have to say this, um, I don't think it's quite right. I think death, we heard last week, death is the last enemy to be defeated. Death is always an enemy. It's never a friend. And in this poem, death becomes a friend. Um, Jesus tells death, go down, death, and get Sister Caroline. She's labored long in the fields, um, and bring her to me. Some of that I love, but death is not our friend. It comes as a thief in the night. And both by convictionally, I believe this, and by experience, as I've been around death, some close deaths, been around people as they've taken their last breath. It comes always, a, it's always a shock. It's always a shock. With all, I suppose there's some exception. I want to be realistic, and I, I could speak in hyperbole. It always comes as a shock. You're never prepared for the end, your end, or especially the end of somebody else. Um, that said, I really love what Whitney Phipps will be speaking here um, with this idea of go down death and the sweetness and the certainty that God's word is the last word, and his last word is life. And this perishable body um, will not be the body that you and I enjoy forever. <laughs> um, but it will be something wholly different. Um, and it will come in the twinkle of an eye, in, a, in the sound of a trumpet, in the twinkle of an eye. Um, so let's hope Spotify works in here. It did earlier. Four minutes, and then we'll say a quick word, and we'll be done. We not. Weep not, she is not dead. She is resting in the bosom of Jesus. Heartbroken husband, weep no more. Grief-stricken son, weep no more. She only just gone on. Day before yesterday morning, God was looking down from his great high heaven, looking down on all his children, and his eye fell on Sister Caroline, tossing on her bed of 
And God's big heart was touched with pity, with everlasting pity. And God sat back on his throne and he commanded that tall, bright angel standing at his right hand, call me death. And that tall, bright angel cried in a voice like a clap of thunder, call death, call death. And the echo sounded down the streets of heaven till it reached the way back to that shadowy place where death waits with his pale white horses. And death heard the summons and he leaped on his fastest horse pale as a sheep in the moonlight. Up the golden street, death galloped, and the hooves of his horses struck fire from the gold, but they didn't make no sound. Up death rode to the great white throne and waited for God's command. And God said, go down, death. Go down, down in Yamacroft and find Sister Caroline. She's borne the burden in the heat of the day. She's labored long in my vineyard and she's tired, she's weary. Go down, death, and bring her to me. And death didn't say a word, but he loosened the reins on his pale white horse and he clapped the spurs to his bloodless sides and out and down he rode through heaven's pearly gates past suns and moons and stars. On death road, leaving the lightning flash behind, straight down he came. While we were watching round her bed, she turned her eyes and looked away. She saw what we couldn't see. She saw old death. She saw old death coming like a falling star, but death didn't frighten Sister Caroline. He looked to her like a welcome friend. And she whispered to us, I'm going on. And she smiled and closed her eyes. And death took her up like a baby. And she lay in his icy arms, but she didn't feel no chill. And death began to ride again up beyond the evening star into the glittering light of glory onto the great white throne and there he laid sister caroline on the loving breast of jesus and jesus took his own hand and wiped away her tears and he smoothed the furrows from her face and the angels sang a little song and Jesus rocked her in his arms and kept a saying, take your rest, take your rest, weep not, weep not, she is not dead. She is asleep. She is resting in the bosom of Jesus. So let's end. Um, therefore, verse 58. 
Um, as is often said, when therefore comes, what is the therefore? Um, uh, you could almost always, trying to give an exception to this, say in view of God's grace, his superabundant, prior, incongruent, effective, non-circular grace. My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, because that too is a gift, this knowledge, this certainty, this true hope, knowing that your labor is not empty, it is not in vain. Um, Let me go back to the words we read earlier. Look to Christ, for he says, Behold, you are saddened, you are afflicted, you have been led into hell by the law and by the black cholera that torments you. Do not despair. There is a rhubarb that is by far the best, namely Christ. Lay hold of him and live. For once Christ is received by faith, a very great battle is begun. The strongest giants who even devour the entire world, namely the two deaths, death itself and Christ's death, are engaged in battle with each other. Yet Christ cries out right away, I am the death of death, the hell of hell, the devil of the devil. Do not fear, my child. I have won. Be of good cheer. You will not die. (coughs) Lord, let this be true. Give us the sure and confident hope of your resurrection. Um, We will not die. Um, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of a trumpet, we will all be changed, and everything will be ours forevermore by your grace and gift. Thank you, Lord. Um, Take these humble words and use them in the way you would. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.